Well, good morning, church family, and Merry Christmas to you. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, the first chapter of the New Testament Scriptures. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 807. I've entitled today's message, Emmanuel Has Come. And while you're turning there, let me just express my gratitude to Pastor Scott and Victoria, to all who participated in the vocal ensemble, thanks to our children, to the men working the sound booth, uh, everyone who had a part in making this service a very special occasion. Um, Thank you so much for that. I'd like to begin in a word of prayer this morning, and then we'll consider this text. So let's bow together. Our Lord, you have given us a very special Christmas day, and how thankful we are that we could gather together as a church family to begin our Christmas celebration with hymns of praise, and with the reading of the Christmas story, and with prayers, and now with a careful consideration of an important text. Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding, pray that you would give us Souls that are receptive to the teachings of your word. Give us an eagerness to respond to what your word has to say to us. And Lord, we're also mindful of those who are away from us today because they are traveling to see family. A number of others who are homesick and still others who are kept home because of weather. Lord, we pray your every blessing on each one of them. And as they tune into our live stream, would you... Minister to their hearts through the music, now through the teaching of your word. Lord, this time is yours. We pray that you would be glorified in it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so turning our attention to Matthew chapter 1 now, you'll notice how this chapter begins with a very lengthy genealogy. In fact, it covers 2,000 years of history from Abraham all the way down to Christ. But you'll also notice something unusual about this genealogy. From the start of verse 2 to the start of verse 16, Matthew traces the lineage of Christ through the male line. So, for example, verse 2 says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and so on and so forth all the way down. But then when we get to the end of verse 16, just as we're coming to Christ himself, Matthew switches the genealogy from the male line to the female. So notice verse 16, it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom, and the word whom there is in the feminine case, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Why does Matthew do this? Why give us 2,000 years of genealogies following the male line only to switch over to the female side at the very last moment? Well, friends, Matthew is doing this because there's something special about Christ. See, while Christ is a real man with a real historical lineage, Yet he's also a man with no genetic tie to his father, Joseph. He was genetically tied to his mother, Mary, alone. 
And what follows in verses 18 through 25 of this chapter is the story of how that remarkable fact came about. And so let's look at the story together now, beginning in verse 18, and I'll start by reading the verse. Matthew writes, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. All right, so the story begins with Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph. The scriptures give us very little background about this couple. Really, all we know is that it was a Jewish couple. They both came from very humble backgrounds. Uh, We know that Joseph was a carpenter by trade. And we also know that Mary was very young, probably in her mid-teens, though in their culture they had no concept of a teenager. She would have been considered a young woman. We also know this was a very godly couple. Clearly, at some point, Joseph and Mary had met and They had fallen in love, and Joseph had gotten up the nerve to ask Mary to be his wife, and she said, yes. And now this couple was betrothed. You see that verse 18, and under Jewish law, betrothal was usually a 12-month period in which the couple was legally considered husband and wife, but they had not yet had their wedding ceremony, and thus they had not yet physically consummated their relationship. That's why verse 18 can say they had not yet come together, but verse 19 can call Joseph Mary's husband. You see, they're in this betrothal period. But then something happened which threatened to break up their whole marriage. You see that in verse 18. Joseph discovered that the woman he loved was pregnant. Let's pause for just a moment to consider that from Joseph's perspective. Okay, here's a young man who's fallen in love with a young woman. And finally, he got up the nerve to ask her to be his bride. She had said yes, and now they are on the final countdown to their wedding day. And you can imagine the excitement building inside of this groom, this husband-to-be. He is making final preparations of the home. He's getting ready for the wedding day. He's probably daydreaming about all the kids that will be running around the house one day. But then one day, this man wakes up and he finds out that the woman he loves is with child. He believes that she has been unfaithful to him. Now his whole world is coming, crashing down. But as we continue the narrative now, you'll notice that Matthew refuses to keep us in suspense. He tells us right away what has happened. It says, Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So, yes, Mary was pregnant, but no, she had not been unfaithful to Joseph. Rather, that little baby growing in her womb was owing to a supernatural work of God himself, such that Mary was now a virgin mother. She was a virgin mother. Friend, if that sounds incredible to you, it should. Because we know how babies are made, and this is not the way it happens. In fact, in all of human history, there has only been one instance of this happening, and that's the account that we are reading right here. This is it. And though Matthew's account of this miracle is extremely brief, 
friend, understand that this is the greatest miracle that God has ever performed. The greatest that He has ever performed. And that's because of who this child is. Friends, this miracle is bigger than the one found in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It is way bigger than the time God parted the Red Sea. And that's because this child was Emmanuel. You see that verse 23. And Emmanuel means God with us. Or God is in our midst. And so, friends, that little baby... Growing inside of Mary's womb was none other than the Son of God Himself come to earth in human flesh. And in theology, we refer to this miracle as the incarnation. And what it means is that the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, was sent to earth by His Father. And through the power of God the Holy Spirit, the divine Son took to himself a human nature so that now in this one person we have a dual nature. He is fully God and fully man, both at the same time in the one person of Christ. That is the miracle of the incarnation. And that is what took place in the womb of the Virgin Mary on this fateful day. And so I say again, this was the greatest miracle that God has ever wrought. That the infinite should be contained in the finite. Or that the immortal should put on mortality. That the eternal word should take on human flesh. No greater miracle can be conceived of. Friends, not only is this the greatest miracle God ever wrought, but it is also one of the greatest doctrines of the Christian faith. This is the first doctrine outlined in the New Testament Scriptures, and it is the doctrine upon which the rest of our New Testament is built. Pastor Alan Cairns, a Presbyterian, was not exaggerating when he said, quote, Apart from the virgin birth of Christ, there is no Christ in whom to believe. There is no gospel to receive. There is no Christianity. There is no faith for which to stand. And then he repeats himself. No Christianity, no gospel, no Christ, no salvation without the incarnation. And anyone who would deny this doctrine has forfeited the right to the title Christian. It is that important. Well, now we continue on with the narrative. We come to verse 19. It says this, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Okay, so clearly at this point in the story, we know what's really going on. But Joseph is still in the dark. He still believes that Mary has been unfaithful to him. Okay, and under Jewish law, a man in his position had a couple of options available. One option was to make a public spectacle of Mary. He could do that by hosting, hosting a public trial. He would bring in all kinds of witnesses. They would testify to Mary's infidelity. They would make a great public scandal of the whole thing. His other option was to pursue a private annulment. And in this case, he would simply appear before a judge. He would need two witnesses, but that's all. He would explain to the judge that his bride had been unfaithful to him, and then they could quietly part ways. Well, our text says that being a righteous man, Joseph chose the latter option. He would break off his betrothal quietly 
simply let Mary go her own way. Friends, mercifully, the Lord did not allow Joseph to carry out these plans. Look at verse 20. It says, But as he, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So Joseph... Yes, Mary is pregnant, but no, Joseph, Mary has not been unfaithful to you. Joseph, the Lord has chosen her for a very special task, and she has accepted it with joy. And Joseph, that little baby now growing in her womb is from the Holy Spirit of God himself. And then the angel goes on, verse 21 says, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So Joseph, the Lord has chosen your bride for a very special task, but he has also chosen you for a very special task. Joseph, though you will not be this child's father by blood, it is the Lord's will that you be his child by law and love. He has chosen you to be the man to raise this child, his own eternal son. And the angel says, Joseph, the Lord would have you call this child Jesus. That's a a variant of the name Joshua, which means the Lord saves. Though in Jesus' case, it would take on a whole new significance because the angel says, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Joseph, call his name Jesus because he is the Lord. And he is the one who will take away our sins. This answers the question of why God would send his son into the world. Friends, according to the scriptures, every one of us comes into the world under the curse of sin. That means we come into the world with the guilt of our first parent, Adam. And it means we also come with our own sinful natures, which incline us away from God and toward our own way. Friends, I don't need to convince you of any of this because you know it from experience. How many times have we failed to live up to our own moral standards, let alone the standards that God has laid down for us? How many times have we wished that we would do good and and yet we can't seem to bring ourselves to do it? Or how many times have we wished that we would stop doing something wrong and yet we can't make ourselves stop? We understand the reality of our condition. Friends, according to the scriptures, the wages of our sin is death. And the heart of that is separation. Death is the separation of the soul from the body. It is the separation of body and soul from God. And we are all on this trajectory, friends, toward death and hell, which is the final definitive separation from God and all that he represents. Friends, this is why God the Father sent his Son into the world. This is why the Holy Spirit fused a human nature to His Son's divine nature and placed Him into the womb of the Virgin Mary. He did this to save His people from their sins so that anyone who would come to Him in faith and repentance could be reconciled to God, have their sins 
wiped away. You see, friends, this little baby, he would begin in the womb of this virgin bride because he would need to experience the fullness of the human experience from conception all the way on through. So God sent him into the womb of Mary. This child would grow up. He would be born. Then he would become a man. In all the way, he would live a life of sinless perfection, something that we were incapable of doing. Friends, he would be able to do this precisely because of his dual nature. As both God and man, divine and human, he could live a perfect, sinless life. And then, friends, at the end of his life, he would give himself up to the cross. And there on the cross, he would offer himself voluntarily as an all-sufficient, sin-bearing sacrifice. He would take upon himself the full weight of the demands of God's justice against our sins. He would take it on his shoulders. And again, he could do that because of his dual nature. As a man, he could act as a substitute for men. As divine, he could offer a once and for all sacrifice, sufficient for the sins of many. He did this so that we could be reconciled to God by faith and repentance. This is what God was doing on this fateful day, my friends. And as we come to verses 22 through 23, Matthew adds this. He says, And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Now he quotes the prophet Isaiah. He says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is simply a reminder to us that the arrival of Christ is, is the fulfillment of a promise that went back for ages and ages. In fact, it went all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right from the first moment that our parents, Adam and Eve, sinned against God in the Garden, plunging them and all their posterity under the curse of sin and death. Right from that moment, God was there. Genesis chapter 3 promising that he would bring his son into the world, that this, that this son of his would be born of a virgin bride, that he would reverse all of the effects of sin's curse, that he would undo all the damage that had been done. This was a promise that God made right from the start, and it was expanded upon more and more as the Old Testament era unfolded. The prophet Isaiah spoke of this, as we've just read, and right on through to the close of our, New of our Old Testament scriptures. And now here we are at the first chapter of the New Testament, and we see the promise fulfilled. God has kept his word. He has provided a Savior from sins. He provided that Savior in the most unexpected way. He didn't come as a conquering king. He came as a baby in a virgin's womb. And Matthew's concluding testimony here, verses 24 and 25, it says, And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, until she had given birth to a son and called his name Jesus. So here we see the godly resolve of Joseph. We see him accepting the task that the Lord had given to him. He takes Mary to be his wife. He determines that he will be the father of this child. Together with Mary, he will raise this child. 
and this child will grow up to be that promised Savior. But you'll notice Matthew says that he and his wife still did not consummate their marriage until after the child was born. Why not? Well, perhaps simply to remove all suspicion that this child had come from natural causes. And so they wait till after Jesus is born. Now, friends, as I begin to bring this message to a close, let me offer these words. Every year at this time, we come up with our lists of things we want for Christmas. We hand those lists to our loved ones, and we hope against hope that they will buy what is on our list and present them to us on Christmas morning. Friends, there's nothing wrong with this. But also understand that regardless of what happens to your wish list this year, God has already given you the greatest gift that you could possibly receive. He has given you the gift of His own Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. He has given you the gift of of liberation from the consequences of your own sins. He has given you the gift of reconciliation with Himself. You see, it's the greatest gift because it meets our greatest need. God tells us in His Word that all we have to do is receive the gift that God has given. I imagine after this service is concluded, you're all going to to race home, you're going to go to those packages under the Christmas tree, and you're going to begin your gift exchange. And your loved one is going to pull out a box from under the tree. They're going to stretch out their arms to hand you the box. You're going to reach out your hands and take hold of it, bring it to yourself. You're going to receive their gift. Well, friends, in the same way, God holds out a gift to us. It is the gift of His own Son, a gift which, if received, means forgiveness, pardon, a new righteous standing before God, a new life with God. And all that we have to do is simply stretch our hands out too and pull it to ourselves. The Scriptures say we do that through repentance and faith. In repentance, we are turning away from our life without God, turning away from our sin, and we are embracing wholeheartedly all that God has done for us through Christ. We are trusting in His life, His death, and His resurrection. Friend, will you not receive the most precious of all gifts this day? In fact, can you think of a better way to celebrate Christmas than to receive the gift of Christ, the one for whom this holiday is named. And then, my friend, if you already have received the gift of Christ, will you not resolve to live like a person who has been saved from sin? Will you not participate enthusiastically in public worship every opportunity you get? Will you not engage in private devotional exercises, studying God's words for yourself, engaging in private prayer because you desire communion with the God who saved you through His Son? Will you not resolve to speak of Him to others that they might partake in this gift with you? Will you not give yourself to His cause, showing your gratitude to Him for all that He has done for you? Will you not put to death the deeds of the flesh and cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Friends, above all, will you not put on love which binds all of these things together in perfect unity? 
My friend, receive the gift of God today if you have not done so yet. And if you have, then live like you have received the greatest gift. And let the world see your gratitude for it. Let's close in prayer now. Father, we thank you for the time that you've given us this day. Thank you for allowing us to start our Christmas morning with corporate worship. Thank you for allowing us to set our minds on things above this most holy day. Lord, for those who are here and they have have not yet received the gift that you offer to them, might you so work in their hearts that they would see the beauty and the glory of this gift and find themselves drawn to it. And might they call out to you with sincere faith and repentance, taking hold of your Son this very day. And Lord, for those who have already received that gift, would you help them every single day to walk in light of the gift that they've received. Help them, Lord, to put to death the sins of the flesh, to put on the fruits of your Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, to walk worthy of the calling that we have received. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen.